was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are study values. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole. Series 2, Episode 2. It's 2-2, it's the Desmond. So as usual, we appreciate you joining us here in the cubbyhole. Do make yourself at home. Remember, we're available to stream or download on all of your favourite podcast apps and websites. I guess also your least favourite ones as well, but obviously don't bother with those ones. Uh, we're always grateful for any review, so if you have time, do consider helping the show spread to a wider Bond-loving world. And uh, also, it couldn't be easier to get in touch with the show if you'd like to send us a message condemning Phil's latest crazy Bond theory, or if you just want us to tackle a tough Bond-related question, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and via email at rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Do keep the great correspondence coming. Now, in our previous episode, we heard from optical effects artist Alan Church on his work with the Bond films. We went through our 007 best villains of the series, and we even had time to drop in on our old friend Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! But what missions are we assigned for for this week's episode? Well, let's find out with the help of our usual hosting team. Firstly, he's the odd job to my hawker. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? Thank you very much. I'm very good, Martin. I thought that was going to be the last I heard of Taffin last week, but thank you very much for bringing it back in. When you say we're a Desmond, by the way, uh, I presume you mean the great Desmond Llewellyn, as opposed to a Desmond Tutu. Maybe there's a new degree system where we just name every degree after um, a favourite MI6 stalwart. So obviously a first would be an M, of course, or maybe a 007. Uh, a two, maybe a two-one therefore is uh, Miss Moneypenny. A two-two would be Q, and probably a third would be R. John Cleese's R. What do we think? Yeah, I like that new system. 2-2 two, two being Q. That works. I think that's a bit unfair to R to call him the third. I think we should have... Well, would it be unfair to say that Sharon the Tea Lady should be a third? I love how we're still finding ways to wedge Sharon the Tea Lady into this podcast. Like We got obsessed with that one moment in For Your Eyes Only on the identigraph, and now she's just forever there. Uh, I don't know who... Well, maybe... Uh, what's the other one? Moneypenny's assistant, Penelope Smallbone or small bush, as uh, Lois Maxwell called her. Maybe she could be the third. Or maybe that's just a fail. A fail would surely be never say never again, would it? A fail is just Edward Fox's M. I wonder if you'll come round to my club, James. So it's good we've got a new scoring system there for university degrees. Secondly, he's the Jill Masterson to my Tilly. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Thanks very much, Martin. Very well, thank you. Um, not too sure if I should be uh, honoured by that remark or offended, but I'll, I'll, I'll say that I should be honoured by that one. Again, we usually do our sort of shout-outs to people on our social media. Um, this week is a little bit different. It's just a, a major thank you to everybody that's been getting in touch with us and following us on our social media sites. We actually surpassed 600 followers on Twitter and 500 followers on Instagram recently. So it's just a huge thank you to everybody that's been getting involved with the show, everyone that sort of comments on posts and tweets and interacting with us on our social media channels. And of course, do keep following us for, for more exclusive content. Hey! 
Play it again, Sam. Okay, so moving to our first segment of today's episode, what scene are we going to look at for this week, Adam? Thank you very much, Martin. It's my pick of scene to go and uh, revisit this week. So obviously it's from Honor Majesty's Secret Service and it's specifically uh, the near wordless sequence when Bond robs the office of uh, Blofeld's Swiss lawyer, Jabruda Gumbolt. So to remind everyone of that scene, let's go to the man himself, Alan Partridge. We're in Switzerland after a romantic montage of bareback horse riding and picking wild flowers in super soft focus. Aussie Bond's off to rob shifty solicitor Gumbold. Just keep my bloody martini dry. The dodgy specky four eyes handily tells us I'll be back in an hour. And Bond picks his way into his office. Wait, Gumbold's forgotten his wallet. Oh no, he's found it. Phew, close one. Bond puts a chair far too close to the safe and a handy bricky sends up the most ridiculously massive gadget of all time, a safe-cracking photocopier. Bond's bored out of his mind waiting for it, but luckily finds a nudie mag hidden in the dirty perb's paper rack. Bond's cheesed off when the safe opens and distracts him from his centrefold, then painstakingly photocopies some evidence because phone cameras aren't a thing yet. Crap! Gumball's coming back! He's coming back! Quick! He's stuck at the elevator! Finish the bloody photocopying, Bond! Bond chucks the photocopier back to his bricky mate and gets out in the nick of time with the naughty centrefold. Cheeky. The end. Thank you very much, Alan, as always, for your insightful summary of the scene there. I rewatched this one just before we, we started the recording of this episode, and it is a really good scene. People, of course, were worried about the new Bond of Lazenby being uh, too different from Connery. But watching this scene, I kind of get he, it is a bit reminiscent, I feel, of Connery. If you remember him from Russia with Love on the way to get the lector. Connery's panther-like walk uh, in the corridors. Similar vibe in this scene. I think Lazenby does a, a really good job, a physical performance. Of course, there's not really any dialogue in, in this particular scene. I don't know whether you agree, but I think the, the music really elevates this scene, doesn't it? Because essentially it is a man doing some photocopying on an oversized photocopier. But the music really gives it that sense of anxiety and, and tension. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all the reasons why I love this. I think it's probably one of the most purely Hitchcockian sequences in Bond, because as you say, it is mostly wordless. It's all based on visual suspense, on bits of information that we're given. We know he has to rob this guy. We know he has to crack the safe, but we know he only has an hour to do it. And we keep cutting back to that clock tower to show us exactly how much time is passing. But yeah, you're right. Lazenby's great physically in this. He has the confident and controlled actions of a Connery, but there's also quite a nervy undercurrent. He's quite tense while he's sat waiting for it and while he's photocopying all the evidence, which he, he actually plays really well. It's there, very subtle. And yeah, John Barry's score is amazing. It's just that repeated phrase, but it just gets louder and louder and he brings more and more instrumentation to it. So it's a brilliantly constructed sequence. It just builds the suspense brilliantly, I think. I was also quite interested to see that, obviously, looking back on it on YouTube, it's only about a six-minute-long clip. So the tension that they build in such a short clip is, is quite astonishing, really, because they're not messing about with it, but you still get that sense of tension. You know, you, you still get that sense that, you know, Bond is, is really jeopardising a lot here just to get this information. And as you said, obviously, you get that great moment where the sort of the enormous gadget is brought up in a, in a cement mixer type contraption and obviously that's the only way you can get it into the building without it being spotted 
most of one of master's secret service we've talked about the fact that there's vibrant colors and there's it's very very engaging in terms of the way that the camera work is done and things like that with this one it feels quite grimy and dingy so you know you get that sense that it's almost industrialized in that scene because the fact we're in the middle of the city and i guess it's sort of a metaphor for the sort of the bread and butter stuff that an agent would have to do and if you look at that office set as well, you know, the actual office of Gumball, it's very elegant and it's quite luxurious in contrast to the griminess of what's outside it. But also there's a lot of frosted glass in it, you know, an awful lot of just windows you can't quite see through. And of course, it suggests the fact that this is quite a clandestine, secretive character and that he is involved in things he doesn't want anyone else knowing about. Also, I guess, returning to that photocopier, I mean, I mean, it's hilarious. It is the slowest, chunkiest gadget that we've seen in a Bond film, I think. Uh, and I was going to have a go at Q for this, but actually, I don't think it is Q's gadget, is it? I think this is actually Draco's gadget, which again explains the, the whole getting it up there with one of Draco's brickies, because it's his construction site. And it just feeds in again to the tension, because Bond's suddenly working with tools and people who aren't as good as Q and his normal mi6 backers and so he's on the back foot he's not as well equipped as he normally should be yeah in fairness i feel like it is multifunctional isn't it it does crack the safe as well as photocopy so we, we have to give them credit there and and i think the bricky does quite well i mean the timing getting that thing across just in time for uh for gumbolt's return he deserves a bit more credit than uh, than he gets well, it's also quite timely the fact that he is later uh, executed at his gloria when towards the end of the film so it's kind of he doesn't really get the, the credit he deserves, really, for helping Bond to uh, to try and stop Blofeld. But no, I, I agree. I think this is a brilliant scene in the way that, again, that it builds and the way that the tension builds. And just the fact there's there are moments of light relief, obviously, as we've said, the point where Bond is kind of so bored waiting for the machine to decode the, the safe that he basically starts reading the Playboy magazine and, and just starts, you know, there's that great moment where he just flicks, the page just drops down and he's just going like, ooh. It could have done with the Roger Moore. Ooh. Strange that Roger never did get to read Playboy. I guess it's a bit below Roger Moore, isn't it, though? He, he sort of doesn't need that sort of thing. It is very telling, the inclusion of Playboy, and it's funny on two levels. The fact that Gumball's just got it hidden within all these other sort of proper newspapers in his rack, and the fact that Bond doesn't pick up any of those said newspapers. But also, obviously, Bond is a member of Playboy, as we learn in um, Diamonds Are Forever, when Case identifies Franks as Bond from the card switch. It's also in appearing, it's a little bit of reassurance after the first scenes of the film, which are all the love story with Tracy it's almost suggesting that he's not fully committed to her yet and that we're still going to get some Bondian extra curricular dalliances you know once the plot moves into Piz Gloria so it's almost a reassurance for those who want Bond to stay the womanizing bachelor but he's not quite there yet he's not quite tied down yet yeah and he does take the the centerfold with him doesn't he there are, I've seen some fan theories. You like a good fan theory, don't you, Phil? One of them is that Blofeld is onto Bond as soon as he takes that centerfold and Gumbold realises someone's been in my office. It's gone. <laughs> that that could have legs, that could. I, I think somebody could be onto it there, yeah. Yeah, but I've never thought of that. Yeah, that does make quite a lot of sense. But also to give uh, the bricky who gets killed at Piz Gloria his credit as well, it's also quite possible that because he's the guy following Bond, he raises the alarm to Draco, which obviously gives Tracy the excuse to go and camp out in the village below the mountain and be there to rescue him later on. So even though he loses his life, yeah, he is a very handy little assistant, that guy. Shame that he bites it. Beg your pardon? Forgot to knock. 
Okay, so moving to our second segment, it's for your ears only. Who is our special guest for this week, Adam? Thank you very much. Our special guest this week is Jim Dowdall, a longtime stunt performer and later coordinator on the Bond movies. Uh, originally, he was a member of the stunt team for the Roger Moore film, starting with The Spy Who Loved Me and going all the way through to Octopussy, where he actually doubled for Bond himself in those amazing train fight sequences. And later he rejoined the series uh, during the Pierce Brosnan era and worked on all four of the Pierce Brosnan films in the 90s and early noughties. So without any further ado, let's go over to the one and only Jim Dowdle. Right, gentlemen, what can I tell you? Throw them at me. Great. Well, well, let's go for it. We've got just a few questions, but generally speaking, yeah, just, just you know, anything you kind of want to chat about, fun stories, memories of, of the Bonds in particular. Well, I can, I can wrap it on for hours. I mean, it depends on how much time you've got, because I've worked on, I think, eight or nine of them, from working as an armourer on the one with the volcano. Um, oh, you with all the guys well, yeah, all the guys abseiling. Well, I was an armourer in those days. I worked for Baptist, who um, supplied all the guns and weapons and stuff for the filming stuff then. So that was my first introduction to a Bond film. I mean, it was very hairy. That was, that, that, um, that was a long abseil for those guys up there, the stunt guys. But it did make me think at the time, yes, I'd, I'd like to have a go at that because um, I don't want to be an armourer all my life. And I met some stunt guys there one of whom was a fellow called joe powell and my godfather was a brigadier in the commandos in world war ii and joe happened to have been in my godfather's commando and so he kind of took me under his wing and i left baptist joined the army uh, joined the parachute regiment came out and the first person i went to see was joe powell and, and he kind of inserted me into the to the stunt side of thing so I guess then we started working on The Spy Who Loved New 76, and it was bloody freezing. We filmed over the Christmas period and in January in the big submarine set, and we did actually have a two-week hiatus because Roger got shingles, and we were laid off at the time with no money, which was a real... But they called a force majeure, as they called it. So we all had to go home and pick our noses for a couple of weeks and then come back again. But we had a, a lot of fun, a lot of fun on that. There were a lot of us on that, but that cold was, that set was so cold. It really was absolutely freezing. And if you had to do a fall into the water, you know, you put, you put, a, you put a wetsuit on, but still it was just absolutely freezing. But it was fun and it was an extremely impressive set. I have to say, we'd never seen anything like that. I was going to ask, because this would have been the new 007 stage at Pinewood, um, presumably, which was built, I think, especially for this whole sequence. And how different Correct. was the other, other sets that you'd worked on? Was, was it a big leap forward? Yes, absolutely. It was, it was hugely. I mean, it was a massive set. The difference was that it was, it was a, 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 you know, it wasn't um, soundproofed. So there was no insulation in the walls or anything else, which meant that if it was hot outside it was boiling in the, on the double o and if it was cold outside vice versa you got very very cold and it, it almost had its own weather system in there because the ceiling was so high you, you know it would be it could be even colder up there and occasionally you would see even little small clouds in there um when the lights were on i mean it was just but it was a it was a magnificent magnificent set from well what we'd ever seen before and it was the whole thing about it was it was it was put up, it was given planning permission as a temporary structure. 
and that's what 50 years now nearly i mean it's you know and it's still there having burnt down twice the indestructible 007 stage um i guess you also had a chance to work in some brilliant locations as well i believe you were in greece on for your eyes only that was quite interesting at meteora where we filmed that because i had a little part as a guard or whatever with another guy called andy bradford who i hope you talk to he's great andy old mate and We'd already done a sequence. We'd done a fight on a boat out there with about, well, I think we took about 20 of us out there to do this massive big fight on a boat. And, and then Andy and I got picked to stay on to play little, a little, little parts in it. So we went up to Meteora and we saw that extraordinary se sequence with Phil Sylvester being kicked off the edge of the cliff. The system that he had, and I remember talking to him at the time and saying, you know, in the parachute regiment, to, to actually descents in a parachute, they have a thing called a fan descender, which is a drum with a fan at the end of it. And it, as you jump off the, the height, the fans spin round and they can alter the, the, uh, the angle of the fans. And that, as it's coming down the drum, decelerates you enough so that you land at roughly the same speed that you would do in a parachute. But nobody had heard of a decelerator at that point. Um, so the system he used was he had a trough with about, 10 sandbags that had a brass ring and a, and, a, and, a, and a piece of like petrol piping through the middle of it. And right at the end of that rope, he had a great big flat disc like a washer. And this, the rope went through each of the sandbags and they were spaced about a foot and a half apart. So that as he reached the end of the rope, it would snatch the first sandbag, which would then hit the second sandbag, the third sandbag and so forth. And that's how he decelerated himself to go over the cliff. We were watching it from where the camera was. And I thought, Jesus, that, that man has got cast iron bollocks, you know, because he was committing himself. He didn't have a secondary on. He just went over there with a, he had a dynamic rope, which has got a certain amount of stretch. But nevertheless, it was a ballsy job. And I had to take my, my hat off to him. But we were out there for about 10 days. And they would use us for a little sequence and then they'd carry off and, carry on and all that so we had a lot of spare time and Topol was there as well and we'd all play a lot of football and bugger about them uh, and then I was lying down there one day with you know having played football in the sunshine with Andy Bradford and a couple of other people there I think uh, maybe Bob Simmons we were just lying in the sun and I sort of said casually oh god the savage pressure of this is dreadful isn't it just taking the piss and Michael Wilson was just passing, as I said that. My eyes were shut. But anyway, the next thing, I get a, I get a, a, a summons to go to, in front of, of Cubby Broccoli the next morning at breakfast, who says to me, I gather you're not very happy here. You, you're finding it uh, rather overpressured. Now, obviously, Michael Wilson had got the needle to the fact that we were being paid nice money for effectively lying in the sun. So I was bollocked by... Cubby Broccoli and had to reassure him. I was no, I was very happy to be there, and that was great. So it, it was a great lesson in learning to keep your mouth shut if there are rather unpleasant producers around. Um, I never did get on with Michael Wilson, uh, but that's another story. Anyway, uh, <laughs> well, I, I was um, going to ask just in terms of um, just in terms of being out on location with the Bond films, wh which sort of stand out to you as, as kind of favourites? Which were the most fun, or I guess the hardest to be on? You know, Greece sounds like it was fantastic as you'd expect, but you know, which of the others really sort of stand out as being, for whatever reason, like really memorable? 
the most memorable one without doubt was was the ice chase in iceland with the with the two cars on the ice i went out there much earlier because i i i had a very good rapport with the the, the special effects guys who actually built those cars and the engineering job was amazing because they took their engines out they put an american v8 normally aspirated engine with carburetors no none of that electronic stuff in it uh, and married a a land rover transfer case onto the gearbox and then put a ford explorer front axle i mean the 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 cost of um altering those cars to do what they did was 1.2 million that's just what it costs in engineering and then so i i went out probably at least a week early with the cars to try them out on the ice and what they had done out there was that they, they'd allowed the bond people to build a dam across the end of the isthmus there in order to get the ice to freeze up and get deeper and deeper because it was tidal there at the end of the um, glacier so when we got there i think the dam had been closed for about 10 days and and the, and the ice was starting to thicken up but what we didn't realize was it it still wasn't that thick and i've got film at home of me driving the car across the ice and you can see the ice moving behind me which uh, you know afterwards I, th I thought jesus christ anyway it's a shame that pierce didn't come out because he's an old mate i've known him since he was at, uh, at drama center as a young student in the early 70s and i used to go there and see him and he used to take him out for beans or toast because he didn't have a pot to piss in and i used to go out and see him in in the States, I used to quite spend quite a lot of time going out to California in January, February when it was quiet here. And I used to go, I'd ring Pierce up and he said, oh, come on, come on the set and all that. And he was doing Remington Steel then. <laughs> and of course, I'd arrive on the set and there was this trailer that, you know, you had to see binoculars to see the other end of it. You know, it was like a like a bowling alley and it had, you know, hot and cold running everything. And, and he just raised up and he'd go, a bit different from the drama centre in Camden Town, isn't it? You know, anyway passing swiftly on so he didn't come out to iceland but um when all the crew were out there we all had our own skidoo so we would go out on the ice on the skidoos in the morning and i used to go out in the darkness and you'd see the dawn coming up over that glacier and that was magical day in day out we never had a cloud in the sky for 10 days that we were shooting and the the cars performed magnificently George, who was driving the Jag, poor bugger, because he had to, uh, because it was open, and he's got, he's completely bald, he's, they've shaved him, and he really did get cold. I used to, you know, go over to him and, and, you know, put my hand on the top of his head, and it was absolutely freezing. The camaraderie that you, you get on the Bond films, it does just seem like it's a real family effort, and people kind of return film by film. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, was was that like legitimately the case, certainly on the ones that you worked on throughout Roger Moore's and, and then later the Brosnan's? What, did it feel very much like you were just sort of a family out having fun almost more than working? Absolutely. We used to get together every 18 months. They try and get all the same people together because there was, the, you know, that cohesion. And we just had fun. Obviously, you had to produce the goods. You couldn't sort of mess around. From that point of, but we did we had a lot of fun and we did you know some really funny things i remember we we were working on octopussy and that was the first one where they had these digital watches right and when there was some james bond watches that went you know with a very squeaky little 
digital thing when you pushed a button on the watch and rocky taylor had one of these watches and he was all like oh look and i've got my bond watch and look at me and and i was sitting there in the caravan one day and he said i'll just see what time it is ha 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 pushes the thing and from outside came a cacophony of exactly the same tones because the Bond fan club had come to the set for the day and there were about eight people and they'd all got these watches and they'd all replied to, 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 to Rocky's thing there. And I mean, he was just so squashed. It was so funny. <laughs> well, I definitely want one of those watches now. Do let us know, listeners, if you've, if you've still got one. Uh, also, sticking with Octopussy, the, the train flight sequences are some of our favourites in the whole Bond franchise. Do you have any memories of the, the Neen Valley Railway? Oh, do I? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, essentially, I was doubling Gabinda to start with, and Martin was doubling for Roger. We'd done quite a lot of the fight on the top of the train, and it was a little bit... Um, there were elements of it where we had to go under bridges and the clearance from the top of the train to the to the top of the bridge was about two and a half feet and so we'd be halfway through the fight and then jerry gavigan who'd be behind the camera go three two one now and we had to flatten ourselves on the on the roof as we went underneath the bridge and then get up and carry on the fight but if jerry hadn't been switched on it would genuinely it would have killed both of us absolutely stone dead because we were rattling along at at 40 plus miles an hour. I mean, there's no way that you would do that today. Today, the whole thing would either be done CG in the studio or you would choose a section because the, the health and safety people would absolutely no way would they let you do that. But those were different times, you know. And sadly, that's what happened with Martin because Arthur was up in the helicopter and there was a set section of, of line that had been cleared that was safe for Martin to hang on the side of the train. And they had done one take, and the idea was you stopped and then reversed back to the thing and then, and then did it again. And Arthur in the helicopter had just done, they'd done one take, and he never said cut. He just said, keep going. Well, Martin was relying on hand signal, and they never got the hand signal to him in time, and he's concentrating on the thing, and he get, goes straight into this steel pile by a pedestrian walkover on the line there and that's what smacked him and he god damn it he managed to hang on until the train stopped but as we know later that he'd he'd um, broken his pelvis and when oh, and he was in a hell of a state i mean he would have probably killed him if he dropped off but he had to, he, he managed to hang on until the train stopped and i remember coming down off the roof and we got him in the train and we got him back to the station by which time they'd phoned for an ambulance and an ambulance was there and as they're carrying him on the stretcher, I'm unpinning the wig because we had only the one wig. And I knew that if we were going to carry on the sequence, we needed the wig. And he's like, uh, I mean, you can't imagine the pain he's in. But I'm, t I'm trying to make a, a joke of it, you know, saying, sorry, Mark, you know, we, we need the wig and I'm going to give it a saucer of milk in a minute and it'll be all right, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So I put the wig on, still warm. And, um, you know, changed the costume and makeup and blah, 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 blah. And then carried on with that. And there was this, obviously, it was tricky because when you think of what had happened to Martin, everybody's a lot more kind of tuned in and the fun has gone out of it a bit. You know, it's all become a bit serious. 
you must also have a lot of trust in each other just to obviously with those the more dangerous stunts there must be a lot of trust between the the stunt coordinators and the performers absolutely i started in circus when i was 16 and you know there's a huge amount of trust which you need there amongst the whole thing it's like a family because you're on the road and you've got you know one day you're dealing with tigers the next day it's elephants and, and and helping to rig trapeze and all that kind of stuff it's very much a family and the same was very true on the bond film but particularly on those ones because as i say we'd get together every 18 months to do another one we used to look after each other we really did look after each other i was going to quickly ask when because you've doubled um i think a couple of the bond actors uh, roger moore and pierce brosnan and i just wanted to ask what's the relationship like does it change much between the two do you work quite closely together uh, does it mean that you form quite good relationships off screen i mean you know i know you've said you know brosnan quite well anyway uh, yes, uh, because there would there would be two or three doubles on different units sometimes. So there was very rarely just the one double. Roger was uh, was you know he was a nice bloke, but he, he was a practical joker. If there was any way that he could play practical jokes on people, he would do it. You know, and we and that again was a thing about laughing. I don't know what it's like with Daniel Craig, but I don't believe that he's. And I've done a film with him. He's a proper actor. And he takes things very seriously, whereas Roger didn't take things seriously. And certainly with Pierce, we used to have a, a, a giggle and a laugh. And I mean, starting on Goldeneye, in the opening sequence, when Wayne does that dive off the dam, and then he comes through the roof and I'm sitting on the, on the, on the Kazi. Well, that was all Pierce's idea. As soon as he got on the film and he said that we're going to have a bloke sitting on the Kazi with his trousers around his legs, he said, I know the man for that. He said to Vic, get Jim to do it. And then after that, I mean, that was probably the most fun, I think, that we had was on GoldenEye. I'd known Martin Campbell since he was uh, in the, working in the art department in the early 70s. And, uh, you know, with Pierce and all the, all the boys and, and there's just lots of friends. And the whole business with the tank was fascinating because I'd, I'd owned tanks. I, I, I knew about tanks. And so I came in right on the ground floor there and trying to work out how we would get these tanks to perform the way that we wanted them to perform and to be able to see. And that was my problem, really. And I, I got hold of little small cameras, one to put underneath the gun barrel, and two, we made these little pods up on either side. So in the driving compartment, I had three screens. The problem was there was no depth of field. So you're only getting a two-dimensional image, which means that, and with a wide-angle lens, somebody who was eight or 10 feet in front of the tank actually looked like they were 30 feet away. So eventually I said, this is dangerous. We can't do this. We need to cut out a section of the armor so that I can get a three-dimensional image. I used so much acetylene, like five bottles of acetylene, to cut out a little piece like this. And then we covered it, you know, we put an extra lamp in there and a bit of camouflage stuff. But I could see, I could actually judge distance now. So I got three screens and I could judge distance and a, a really good uh, comm system so that I could communicate with people. And we had a little antenna uh, stuck on the back of the turret where you couldn't be, you could be seen out of camera. <laughs> and then, of course, we had to cut the bit out for Pierce to be in there because you don't drive tanks on the right hand side, you drive on the left hand side. So he was in there and I could reach across and, and pinch his buttocks just for a giggle, you know, if, we were, if he, was, he was in there. It was fun. I can't tell you, boys. It was such fun. I thought being, being being paid for this shit. But I can I can only imagine how much fun it was. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> you are still driving around in thirty-seven tons worth of kit, and if you get it wrong, there's no coming back from that. 
and we nearly we nearly killed the motorcycle jumper lovely guy but i mean he was just he just never listened to it and he missed the queue and, and gary was thundering down the road and he drives in front of it. well he missed him by a hair if he'd been another second earlier oh, sorry a second later it, gary would have hit him absolutely smack in the middle no way he could have stopped so good fun but a real element of if it goes wrong it goes wrong big time and you don't come back from that you know you've got to absolutely 100% switch on. There's no room for going, oh, well, we all know what we're doing. We'll, make, we'll have a bit of a giggle and a smile and all that kind of stuff. I was just going to say, you must be incredibly proud of, obviously, the final product with the Golden Eye chase sequence. You must be incredibly proud of being able to put that together and being a part of that team, just, just to see how the, the finished product came out as well. 100%, because it was such an unusual chase. And none of us know what the fuck we're doing because nobody else, nobody's made a, 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 a sequence with a 35 ton, 37 ton tank, you know, whizzing around the streets and going through brick walls. So, you know, we're cutting new ground, but Gary got that slide absolutely perfect in St. Peter's. I mean, he just got it down to a T. It was a thing of beauty to watch. The funny thing was that as we were going up all these lines of parked vehicles before he got up to the square to do the spin, Every time he was going up, he was setting all the car alarms off. So at the end of each take, there would be this cacophony of, of, of car alarms, which was slowly quieting down before we could have a conversation. But yes, I'm very proud. GoldenEye was definitely, I think, the most fun. It was Pierce's first outing as Bond. We were old mates. We could sit in the hotel at night and, you know, remember the old days. And it was, it was the same, actually, on Tomorrow Never Dies. That was also that, that, the car chase in the underground garage was fabulous because again we were cutting new ground there with steve street driving the car blind and us being the, the bad guys and the villains and given the limited amount of visibility because i used the same system to rig the cars for steve on that as i'd used in the tank but still you know did we weren't using digital stuff then there wasn't digital cameras like there is now and so the image was not nearly as clear and it certainly wasn't in color and he's sitting squatting with a black drape over his head you know behind the passenger seat trying to get all this together in an underground garage where there are a lot of obstacles and film crew and all that kind of stuff and he did an absolutely brilliant job and I'd realized how difficult it was when we went to Germany to do the sequence with the car going up the thing before it crashes through the wall and goes through the car rental the Avis window I drove it there I went you know Steve was busy on something else so I went out to Germany and did that and that thing and going round that curve just because i couldn't see anything now i'm i'm in totally video land i was just so lucky i didn't smash into the side of the wall there going up that bit you know because they, they obviously it had to be on the hurry up it was fantastic everything we were doing was was cutting new ground and all that that rubbish with you know with the, with the different cars that was a sad thing bond's car the bmw Originally, the Bond people had said, we'd like him to be driving an English car. So they went to Rover and Rover said, yes, we'll give you a car. They said, well, hang on, we need a dozen of them. Went, a dozen? What? Are you mad? A dozen cars? No, 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 you can't have those. That'd be ridiculous. Because went to BMW, BMW just said, how many do you want? 10, 14? No problem. And we'll send you the guy to design the computer system because you're going to be cutting all sorts of wires. And so they sent this guy over from Germany and he was about 24. 
and he had hair down to his waist, right, and scrap iron through his nose. And he had a G4 computer, an Apple G4 computer. He used to plug it in to, under the bonnet, and he would bypass whatever fuck up that the special effects boys had got. And we carry on. We couldn't have done the film without him. And there was this line of BMWs, one fixed up with the rockets, one fixed up with the thing that comes out the bonnet, one fixed up with the tyres, and all. each one was a different car. Well, Rover, imagine what they could have, the, the publicity and the thing that they could have got if they'd just been, you know, not gone, oh, no, you can't have 12 or 14 cars. Tut, tut, tut. No, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, it seems oh. like they shot themselves in the foot there. They kind of missed out massively there. Um, we're, we're conscious of not taking too much of your time, Jim. So I guess by way of sort of a wrap-up final question, um, of all the stunts, all the moments that you were sort of involved in on the Bond films, which kind of stands out to you as the one you're, you're the most proud of, either because it was so much fun to do or it broke new ground or it was particularly challenging? That's really difficult. The, as I said, the, you know, the ice chase and the tank chase are the two which definitely, for me, are the ones which I have the happiest memories, the memories of, you know, the sphincter factor, the, the, you know, the guys that were on it doing those things, you know, with Dave Bickers, who was a really good mate of mine and, and, and his team, who were just fantastic, absolutely the best in the game and having fun, serious fun, but fun. It was just great. When you arrived on the set in those days, there was a joy to it. There was people smiling. There was, you know, people that you worked with for, for years on, on various shows and people you'd come up with in the business. They knew what you could do. You knew what they could do. There was a mutual respect there. And Barbara, Barbara Broccoli, knew that, that, that you needed that kind of symbiosis to make the kind of films that they were making. And it absolutely, you know, in my judgment, it worked. It really did. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. So that was Jim Dowdle. I mean, what a treat it was to have Jim here in the, the cubby hole. I think he was a, it was a brilliant storyteller, wasn't he? And he, he combined that with some brilliant stories. So kind of a perfect interview guest. Uh, and I also get the sense that we did barely scratched the surface, really, of all the incredible experiences that he's had as a, as a stunt performer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And outside of the Bond films as well. I mean, he told us a, a, a hilarious story about working on First Night, which uh, we can't really repeat here, but it, it was an absolute corker. And also um, a great story about Laurence Olivier when he was very young and working with uh, the great Lord Olivier. Uh, yeah, brilliant. And, and yeah, I mean, he said at the start of our chat with him, I could talk about Bond for hours and I'm sure he could and we'd have very happily listened to it. It was hard enough getting the time that we had with him down to a segment. So, you know, hopefully maybe a return uh, call from Jim in the future just to talk about all the other stuff. Yeah, great to hear all of his connections with the Bond people as well, like he was uh, good friends with Brosnan. Uh, he never really told us who the best person at football was, did he? Like he talks about playing football with a lot of people on Fiori's only. But who was the best footballer? Was was Topol better than Roger Moore? Was Julian Glover, you know, a really good goalkeeper? Was Lynn Holly Johnson really light on her toes? You know, a really good sort of tackling midfielder. We we don't know. We should have asked. See, I like to say that Q uh, Desmond Llewellyn would have probably used his gadgets. I think there would have been some uh, cheating going on. Early forms of goal line technology, perhaps VAR. <laughs> Q's refereeing, isn't he? And just uh, making sure the team he wants to win wins. Baby, 
So next up, we have the 007 best segment. What were we deciding on this week, Phil? Well, this week it's one that's quite close to my heart. So this week it's the top 007 chases and pursuits. Number seven. Just making it onto the list is the Madagascar parkour sequence, if you remember, at the start of Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. So this one, I think, deservedly on the list. Of course, some of the older chasers, perhaps in the the Moore era, were a bit unrealistic. But this one certainly falls under the category of, of realism, doesn't it? Quite a long chase, and it starts, of course, with uh, with Bond's colleague making a, a, a rookie amateur mistake, which I quite liked. The actual chase itself was really quite impressive, wasn't it? With a couple of moments of comedy, I quite like uh, how the guy jumps through the hole, and uh, and Craig's having none of it, just smashes through the uh, the plywood. Uh, yeah, totally agree. And, and another great moment is uh, on the building site when um, the the pursuer, the pursuant rather, first thinks he's got away from Bond and then he comes crashing through the wall with that massive digger. Um, they're great moments and they sort of establish Bond as a rookie agent at this point. The fact that he is green, but he's very determined. He makes mistakes and he has to improvise to keep up with this guy who is much better than him. Uh, and you're right, it establishes Daniel Craig as the roughest and probably the most physical Bond actor that we've seen up to this point. It's a real ultra modern perhaps even beyond modern action sequence and also you know the use of height and vertigo in it as well the fact that we get that amazing part of the fight that goes up onto the the crane arm that's kind of overhanging everything so we get that great sense of the vertiginous nature of the fight as well yeah and i love the originality of this you know the fact that we've never really seen anything like this before also we'd seen sort of foot chases but this completely revitalize what they could actually do with the format and it's just you know again the way that it builds the energy behind it but also the physical fitness you know we are where we've normally seen bond is kind of a hard smoking hard drinking kind of ruffled agent this is his sort of his origin where he's he's just starting out and he's he's kind of you almost get the sense he's the peak of physical fitness and he's able to match you know the terrorist for every move almost number six Okay, and in at number six, it is the climactic tanker chase from License to Kill. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is a really classic, spectacular Bond action sequence, Um, but it stands out because it is such in a very lean and vicious film. I mean, looking at License to Kill, it's only really the opening sequence with uh, almost hooker-ducking Sanchez's plane, and this one, which are classic Bond big actioners. And so we're really made to wait throughout the entire film for a classic Bondian bit of stunt work. And when we get it, it really pays off. Just the sheer scale and difficulty on a technical level of having to drive these tankers in the way that they do with all the pyrotechnics going on. It's it's a really memorable and brilliant chase, I feel. Yeah, I, I adore this sequence. And of course, it was coordinated by the late, great Remy Julien, who we've, we've talked fondly um, about in previous episodes. And again, as you say, Adam, it's, it's just the, the risk and the, the level of complexity to all the stunts that were involved. It was, I believe it was a French stunt driver that actually did the famous sequence where the lorry goes up on half its wheels. Um, and that was sort of toyed with at an earlier stage. So it's, it's quite astonishing, just the, the sort of originality again and the sort of ingenuity that went into that that stunt chase. Yeah, I really like that it shows off. It emphasizes the the physicality of Timmy's performance, doesn't it? After after Roger Moore's rather 
elderly performance, shall we say. Timmy's uh, bonds is much more physical, and uh, he's able to put up a good fight, isn't he, against these people driving the, the tankers. Uh, and also, I'd say the, a good attention to detail as well. There's a small little uh, Easter egg when Sanchez's men are, are firing at one of the tankers, and it starts playing the beginning of the James Bond theme. So I think just uh, everything about the scene, very well put together and uh, nice attention to detail. Yeah, and I also think that this has probably one of the best endings of any Bond film as well. You know, the moment when the tanker rolls down the the embankment and obviously Sanchez and, and Bond are both badly injured. And you, you genuinely think that, you know, Sanchez is finally going to get the moment to kill Bond because his, Bond has no gadgets. He's got no necessary way that you think he's going to get out of it. And also you get that great closing line of don't you want to know why? And then he just holds the lighter up. Everyone got a really odd feeling about working on that mountain, didn't they? There was there was a very funny atmosphere around the shoot of this. Everyone thought it was haunted. And of course, there's that famous, is it or isn't it, a giant flaming hand that seems to be, uh, seems to be going on in one of the pyrotechnics. I just think the spirits of the undead were unhappy with the Truman Lodge character. <laughs> I'm glad he met his demise there. Yeah, even they'd had enough of his constant Wolf of Wall Street yuppie whining. They're just like, oh, go and work with Michael Douglas in Wall Street instead. You're in the wrong film, Truman Lodge. Number five. Fifth place, we have the Bayou Boat Chase from Live and Let Die. One of the most iconic uh, kind of boat chases from the entire series. And of course, at the time, it sets um, a world record for the infamous jump over Sheriff J.W. Pepper's cast. Well, I think my love of Live and Let Die is boosting these in the the rankings. I think perhaps it wouldn't have made the top seven if I hadn't have placed it so so highly on my on my list. Uh, but for me, I think it's just a great sequence. It's it's a long sequence, uh, but I think each element of it, it doesn't get boring. Uh, there's different things happening. There's some obviously there's a lot of comedy happening as they crash through the wedding and we get it flying through. J.W. Pepper's car. Maybe my overall impression of the film gives me a slightly rose-tinted view on this one, but uh, but it is an incredible chase. I mean, my thoughts on Live and Let Die and indeed Sheriff J.W. Pepper notwithstanding, this is a great chase sequence. It's it's the, the funniest passage of the whole film by far, I think, the most successful comic chase in a film that is full of comic chases. Uh, and it also kind of dilutes the tension a bit after what is probably the most genuinely intense and dangerous part of the film in the alligator farm. I mean, that Ross Kananga stunt jumping over the backs, that's really frightening, even though it feels quite small scale. And so there's no way that, you know, in a chase sequence, even with all the great record-breaking stunt work going on, you can make it feel quite as risky or quite as full of jeopardy. And so it is a smart idea to actually play it as a much more comic-like relief-oriented chase sequence coming after that moment. If you've read uh, 007 Diaries, written by Roger Moore, uh, there's quite interesting passages there on the, the trials and tribulations of actually filming the whole chase sequence and how difficult it was with the, of course, with the weather conditions in the bayou. Uh, so I certainly recommend that book if, uh, if people are more interested in, uh, in Live and Let Die than Adam and Phil. Not uninterested in it, it's just not our favourite. I mean, it is true, if, if this whole sequence were in black and white with all the Sheriff J.W. Pepper done in intertitles, it could almost be just a silent film put in the middle of the main film. I mean, there is some kind of boat or water-based action sequence in every Roger Moore Bond film, bar Octopussy. So maybe he loved this whole sequence so much that that's what made him go back to the producers every film and say, well, when do I get on a boat in this one? In at number four, we have the escape from Piz Gloria 
in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Now, this one, kind of a, a, an extended sequence followed by another extended sequence, of course, Bond skiing in pursuit of uh, Blofeld, of Kelly Savalas. Um, and then, of course, the car chase where uh, where Tracy is driving the car. So I think uh, this one offers something different, I feel, from the uh, the traditional Bond formula. We mentioned earlier in the episode about uh, the fragility and vulnerability of Lazenby's Bond. And this one kind of uh, emphasizes that as well, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the whole sequence kind of unfolds with a sort of weird nightmare logic, doesn't it? Going from his sort of escape on the cable car to, you know, being pursued down the mountain, skiing in near darkness, to everyone closing in on, in on him when it's the cold village with the Christmas market on and he's just huddled in that coat and he's really scared and desperate. So Lazenby again captures that. And also going back to what we were talking about, the, the Gumbold scene and the Playboy magazine and Bond not quite being committed to Tracy at that point. This is the sequence where, because of the commitment and the resourcefulness of Diana Riggers Tracy, this is where he does realise what he has, and he does make his mind up to commit to her after his dalliances of his Gloria, excusable, obviously, you know, in the context of the mission. Uh, but it just enhances the tragedy of her being captured pretty much in the next scene after this sequence, after his proposal. Yeah, and there's a real sense of jeopardy to this to this scene as well. You know, the sense that um, Bond is kind of he's outnumbered and outgunned, and and you know the sense that he he needs an ally to save him. Again, we've we've spoken before about the Gumbold scene where he doesn't necessarily have Q's gadgets to rely on. He doesn't necessarily have a means of escape in this point. You know, the only thing he can really rely on is his own cunning and and the sense that you know he's blended in with the crowd as best he can having already skied, you know, risked his life to, to escape from his glory and then to ski down the mountainside. So it's it's just the way that all builds again, you know, the the it's quite a, an aggressive ski chase that he, he has to engage in. And then of course, you know, they, they think that he's going to get away because obviously um you know Tracy arrives with the Mercury Cougar and they they make their initial escape. But then obviously Irma Bunt and the henchmen have, have then clocked him. So he's then they're then having to to use their own um, ingenuity to escape from that situation as well. So the way that it's all put together works really well, I think. Number three. Okay, so in at number three, it's the BMW chase in the car park in Hamburg in Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, we love this uh, film and indeed this chase. It's a real peak, I think we were saying when we talked about Tomorrow Never Dies in terms of the action set pieces. And just this being in a car park setting, it really enhances that sense of physical claustrophobia and the danger of the chase, you know, trying to find these very sort of serpentine routes around these these parked cars. Uh, and it, it really does make this, alongside all the gadgets, that are being shown off it makes it a wonderfully memorable and exciting sequence yeah i love the the contained feel of this one like you're i mean you know that brosnan's bond is always going to escape somehow but you're uh, it's, it's kind of confusing as to how he's exactly going to escape uh, with this one and of course as uh, as jim mentioned in the interview in this episode he was the one who uh, who drove the car up the uh, the spiral there at the top uh, to get it on the roof so uh, yeah really impressive i thought uh, great use of gadgets as well yeah, I think it's also the complexity and kind of the originality of what they were trying to do with this stunt sequence because they really were pushing the envelope of what was possible at that time. Again, we, we're kind of talking about a time when CGI wasn't as widely used, so they were having to do all this for real. And you really sense that with the stunts as they're being performed. Obviously, Pierce Brosnan is doing all the camera close-ups on the back seat, but that's a real person having to drive in, in the footwell. And he's obviously then blanked out. And the fact they had to 
partly alter the cars to be able to fit someone in the back so that they could literally drive around with a little tiny steering wheel and have to do all those stunts for real while you know you had rocket fire and you had machine guns and all sorts of different you know explosions going off there was, there was real jeopardy behind that and i think it's done really really well yeah i think that's a great point about it being in these of course in the 90s the technology had advanced so much but then the technology with which that they could actually perform the stunts hadn't caught up yet uh, so it's kind of in that weird middle ground wasn't it and that's what i think makes it a bit more exciting the fact you know that they're doing this they've had to find a way to do this for real absolutely and it's the cleverness of the fact that bond is driving but not driving he's doing it all by remote control from the back seat on the phone and so it's also the first bond action sequence of the video game age in a weird way if you discount domination from never say never again obviously Brosnan also has that great lightness of touch. I mean, I just love the scenes of him giggling in the back seat when he deploys a gadget and it works particularly well. And also just that little sly grin when he just sends the car off the top of the car park. Like, it's it's sort of a bit like he's crashing it for good measure. He doesn't really need to do that. He's already got away and he's escaped, but he just thinks, oh no, I'll send it off the rooftop anyway. Yeah, if I remember correctly, is it a little, it's a little hand flourish, isn't it, as he moves his hand away from the uh, the control pad? It's it's almost like a balletic sort of brush of the hand, just just as the car launches off the edge of the the car park. It's almost like he's he's making out that it was an accident on his part, you know, just in case Q sees the footage back and realizes what's happened. Just him covering his base and saying, "Oh, didn't mean to do that. Sorry. Oh, my bad. Not got it down yet." Number two. So moving on to number two is the tank chase in GoldenEye. Of course, from our generation, one of the most memorable um, pursuit chases, not just of a bomb film, but certainly one of the, the films of the 90s. As Jim Dowdle um, explained in our interview with him, obviously there was a lot of work that went into that stunt sequence. And it kind of shows, you know, it's, it's so um, visceral and, an action packed and there was so much hazard and danger involved in that sequence and for me it's it's one of my favorite film stunt sequences of all time not just for a bomb film yeah it is particularly pleasing after having spoken to jim uh, in this episode that uh, two of our top three are our sequences that he was incredibly closely involved with and he's talked about the challenges um of this uh of this using the tank but again a really incredible and imaginative new use of a vehicle in a bond action scene is just as the tankers were in license to kill uh it's also great symbolism in the context of golden eyes a sort of post-cold war bond you know the idea that a, a british agent is bashing you know a russian general across st petersburg with his own tank it is very very symbolic of where bond currently is uh but beyond that just a great exciting sequence in its own right yeah, and really matches well with the Brosnan era. I think you can, uh, I'm not sure I could imagine any of the other Bonds really pulling off with the, the style and suaveness of, of Brosnan. We kind of see that also in the, in a lesser chase in uh, in The World Is Not Enough, of course, the Thames boat chase that didn't make it onto our top seven, uh, because obviously this one is, is much, much better and thrilling. Uh, but uh, yeah, certainly I feel like it matches quite well with with Brosnan. I think it's the first time he has the full blaring brassy Bond theme playing under him and, and not that sort of weird Eric Serra drums version. So it is perhaps the first time we've seen a big bashing Bond moment from him. And the, the framing and the timing of that first shot of the chase when the car drives around the corner and there's just a big grey wall behind it and the tank just smashes through it. It's just absolutely perfect, that starting moment, isn't it? 
Yeah, completely agree. Maybe Phil would have preferred uh, Eric Serra's Game Boy music in the in the sequence. Would you, Phil? No, I, f- I fully agree that Eric Serra was was a poor choice for the music on that film. That's probably the only blemish on GoldenEye's uh, legacy. Number one. Okay, and in at number one, our top chase of the Bond series, in our opinion, is of course the Lotus Chase in The Spy Who Loved Me. So this one, I mean, what can we say about this chase? So many different elements, uh, such a quite a long sequence, and you're you're kind of uh, following along with uh, the different villains who are chasing Sir Rogers Bond. Perhaps uh, the uh, Naomi in the helicopter might be is the most memorable for me. Uh, quite a sassy character who we don't see enough of, in in my opinion, blown to smithereens, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, just incredible from uh, right from the beginning, right to the end, uh, with a bit of comedy that we get at the end, of course. Um, so yeah, Elon Musk's Lotus nowadays, with his newfound wealth, perhaps he could recreate this scene as uh, probably he'd want to play the other Bond character. Perhaps Elon should have just used that Lotus to go and rescue those Thai uh, cave divers instead of going on social media and calling one of them a pedo. Maybe that would have been a better use of his resources and status. Um, we, we do see quite a lot of Naomi, if I remember that bikini correctly. But 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 anyway, the great thing about this is it's, it's sort of the first big gadgety car chase we've had since Goldfinger, really. Uh, and it tops it, like Lewis Gilbert's direction and actually Marvin Hamlish's score are just brilliant here they ramp up the excitement of the sequence to such an amazing fever pitch Uh, and we've talked a bit about the escalation of a bond action sequence the fact that it builds and builds and builds and this is the perfect example of that with the various henchmen going from the bike and sidecar to jaws following in that car to naomi and her helicopter to finally going into a submarine battle beneath the sea it just it just keeps on expanding like a chinese puzzle box in a way that's really satisfying yeah, I just say I think it just builds really well, and I also love the the sense of the style behind it because you know without the, I think the Lotus Esprit is so important to that car chase because because it kind of defined that era, it defined the seventies, and that sort of wedge shape became you know iconic for that time and that place. And you know, and there's great moments with camera work and the way that it just closes in on on Roger Moore and on Naomi. You just get those cheeky winks and those cheeky glances, and there's they're kind of playing with each other, they're kind of toying with each other, and there's that great reaction to the drama of that whole scene, and it just all builds really well, and then, of course, there's a great moment of cat and mouse as well, you know, you don't really know who's got the upper hand, and I I think it's full credit to everybody involved with that sequence that it works so well. Yeah, you're right, it does keep that screwball comedy battle of the sexes thing between Bond and Amasova going throughout it, doesn't it? Although there is a, a slight sort of, um, not error as such, but I always find it strange that uh, Amasova's very scared at first and a bit shocked when he first drives the Lotus into the sea. But then you think, well, hang on, if you've seen all the blueprints and know everything this car can do, why are you surprised that it suddenly turns into a submarine? Surely you knew that. Or maybe that was just a later addition by Q when he realised that the Russians knew about his new Lotus car. So he thought, I know what will fool them. I'll turn it into a submarine. Yeah, that was Q's retirement car. Like the one in the world, isn't that He's doing some major um, aquatic uh, adventures, isn't he, in his retirement queue with those two in his back pocket. Okay, so moving on now to the film club. We had Taffin last week. What have we got this week, Adam? 
Thank you very much. So last week was Pierce Brosnan. As promised, this week it is Roger Moore in 1970's The Man Who Haunted Himself. So Moore made this just after he'd finished playing The Saint and before he uh, starred with Tony Curtis in The Persuaders on television. But beyond that, it was kind of the film that proved him as a big screen star beyond being able to headline TV series and really marked him out to the Bond producers as someone who could hold the silver screen. So in The Man Who Haunted Himself, Roger Moore plays Harry Pelham, who's a kind of dapper but fastidious and straight-laced and quite reserved exec of a marine engineering company. And uh, Mania kind of seizes uh, Roger Moore on the way home while he's driving, and he nearly dies in a car crash. And weirdly, while he's being saved on the operating table, two heartbeats are seen for uh, a very brief time. After his recovery, strange events start taking place. He's told of wild nights out at uh, his snooker club and a casino that he was apparently at but doesn't remember. Uh, a mysterious silver car starts following him around. Uh, a very attractive photographer seems to think that they're having an affair with him, which, of course, he has no knowledge of. Uh, and then in his company, there's a corporate espionage case due to a, a merger that's going to happen, which seems to have been down to him leaking valuable information away from the company. And so the whole film is built around this key mystery of, is there someone impersonating Pelham? Or is he doing all of this himself and for some reason can't remember any of it? Or, probably, is it something altogether stranger that's going on? Now, this is a really interesting film, this. The final explanation of, of, of what's going on is a little bit unsatisfying. It goes into quite a psychedelic and trippy resolution. But it's a great doppelganger thriller. And the sense of mystery as to what's going on and why all these things are happening that he's apparently doing but doesn't remember. The mystery of what's going on is maintained throughout the film. And it, it creates a very anxious and uneasy sense to it. It's directed by Basil Dearden, who was a sort of veteran of some of the Ealing Studios comedies. And he brings that sort of sense of the off-kilter framing and editing and a very strange atmosphere that he's able to create. He brings that to this film. Now, Roger Moore considers this his best screen performance, and it's very hard to disagree. He's amazing in it. It's actually his two best screen performances to me because he's playing two roles, one as the main character and one as the doppelganger. And I won't obviously explain the nature of that doppelganger. But both of those performances see him playing against type. As Pelham, he's quite irascible and stuffy and he's quite repressed, but that gives way to something quite frantic and, and actually a sense of meltdown and of the character fraying at the edges that's really emotionally honest. And yet as Pelham's double, he's got that sense of Roger Moore charm, but it's with a more sort of caddish and sort of sleazy darkness, which is very different and much more disturbing to anything else Roger Moore's done. Uh, Hildegard Neal uh, plays his wife Eve, and she's great as well. She went on to become uh, Mrs. Brian Blessed, actually, much later on. And just in terms of Bond, there's a great line Roger Moore has when uh, he and uh, his other executives at the company are talking about this leak. And he has a, a line which is, uh, espionage isn't all James Bond and Her Majesty's Secret Service, you know. So it's kind of held up as one of those weird foreshadowings of him having gone on to get the Bond role partly as a result of how strong he is in this film, and he is absolutely wonderful in it. So check it out. It's not a perfect film, but it is a really interesting, uneasy, mysterious watch, which boasts, I think, Roger Moore's finest acting work of his career. Roger Moore, of course, was very modest about his acting talents, uh, but he does seem to have quite a, a good range, doesn't he? Certainly beyond the, the comedy that we see in Bond. 
Yeah, I think because of Bond and also because of The Saint and The Persuaders, and he does always in those films bring his Roger Moore natural screen persona to them, but he was always a little bit typecast of that. And certainly in his films after he takes the Bond role, I think they cast him on that basis. So in things like Escape to Athena and Gold and the other big hits he did after taking on Bond, he is kind of doing that. And that's why this film's so fascinating, because it's pre-Bond, but post his TV work, or certainly the TV work that made him a star. So it's kind of a very rare opportunity for him him to take a big risk with his screen persona and as I say he does it not once but twice both of his roles in this he is playing against type and I think he does it superbly like he's really emotionally affecting in the scenes when as the main Pelham the sense of his life collapsing really starts to get to him it's a very honest performance and I think it's really worth seeing and it does prove that he wasn't just a film star he was like Connery a great actor as well he's tall and he's dark and like a shark, he looks for trouble. That's why the zeros double. Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. We'll move on now to our next segment, which is uh, Phil's crazy theories. So it wasn't so crazy last week, was it, Phil? But uh, what have you got for us this time? Well, as I said, last week it was the Kleb connection, so we were talking about whether Rosa Kleb and Irma Bunce were actually distant relatives and whether, you know, Spectre were actually hiring from their own criminal families that they, they had links to. Of course, if, if you do want to get in touch and you, you think that this is a completely balmy idea and that I'm, I'm talking nonsense, then please do get in touch with us. And of course, if you have your own James Bond theories that you want to run past us and uh, for us to discuss, then please let us know on our social media channels. So for this week's theory, it actually goes more closer to home. We're actually looking at MI6 this week. And it's always an idea I've kind of wondered about in terms of the double O program. As we know, 007 is always kind of the man for the job. He's always the one that people turn to when there's kind of a, an international crisis, you know, with the world, whether there's a, a superpower that's gone rogue or whether there's a, you know, a, a, a multi-billionaire industrialist that's threatening to, to take over the world with some elaborate and insane plan. What if, though, the double O program actually ranks the agents based on their competence and ability what if, you know, kind of 001 is viewed in the highest regard and is viewed as kind of their best agent and it kind of goes downhill from there? So, you know, kind of 009 is seen as the worst and the weakest. So actually, in actual fact, 007 isn't really seen in that higher regard. He's just kind of seen as one of the other agents who has to sort of clear up the mess when somebody else gets killed. So what if it's kind of 001 upwards they are actually doing all the legwork and are actually risking their lives and getting killed to find out all the important information. And kind of Bond is just there to take all the glory and kind of swings in at the last minute. But, you know, it, it might explain why kind of M and Q and, and you know, and Freddie Gray are often quite dismissive towards him, partly because of the fact that he often insults them, but also because of the fact that, you know, maybe they actually, they see 001, 002, 003 as, as maybe their chosen sons. Maybe we don't really know what their relationship is with the other double O's. Again, it's only a theory, so if you think this is complete nonsense and that actually Bond is, is the best of British and that, you know, he is the best agent that MI6 has, then of course do let us know. But it's just a theory that I've held for a long time of, of you know, kind of we don't know the backstory so much of the other double O's. And is there actually cause for concern that Bond is perhaps, you know, not as held in the highest regard as we might imagine? 
Yeah, we went quite easy on you last week, Phil. But but this is absolute nonsense uh, on on several levels. First of all, I'm gonna I'm gonna exhibit A is the Living Daylights opening sequence. 007 is there, as are 002 and 004. One of 002 and 004 gets killed by the guy that Bond beats. The other guy literally lands in his parachute and is shot by a pink powder puff gun. In what way can you possibly think they are therefore, through their number rankings, better agents than 007? Yeah, that was 002 that uh, that loses the exercise by being hit by the paintball. So according to your theory, Phil, he's the second best agent that uh, MI6 has. Yes, but can I just point out, A, that is a training exercise, so they are, they're not there in actual physical combat, they're there as a training exercise, so they're, they're not going to be aware that a, a hitman is there to kill them. So they are there, again, they are learning, that might be an exercise they haven't done before, they might not have parachuted out of the back of a, a B-52 bomber or, you know, out of a Lancaster bomber. And let's yeah, not but, forget... Yeah, but... Yeah, but your two supposedly lesser agents both managed it okay. They landed fine. What, in terms of 002 and 004? Yeah, well, 004 and 007 at least managed to land in their parachutes in such a way that they're not shot immediately. I mean, I mean, you know, yeah, everyone makes mistakes. But according to your theory, if those lesser agents can do it, surely 002 should have been able to. Yes, true. But, I mean, the thing is, if he's not as experienced with parachutes, it's a very specific task that they're being asked to do to parachute out of the back of a plane if he's just misjudged his landing he might just this is a very odd segue we're going down but he might have just misjudged his landing and been unfortunate to to land in a tree he could have a very glittering and distinguished military career for all we know we don't know the backstory well i mean no this is just a stupid theory phil but but i'll uh <laughs> i will support you there are a couple of bits of evidence that might suggest that you're onto something. If you remember in Goldfinger when he's on the the table and the laser beam is going up his jeffers, he tells Goldfinger that if you kill me, then 008 replaces me. So that might indicate. And I think there's some a similar line in The Living Daylights as well. Roger Brown's M says that he'll 008 can just replace him. But but, but why would why would you do that though? If 008 is worse than 007, because 007 just failed. So why why wouldn't you get 006 in or a higher 00? Because the, the lower double O failed the mission. Why would you yeah, get they're already dead, lowly so they've number got one option? <laughs> yeah, right, here's my main here's my main problem with this. Can you not therefore get promoted at the double O's if like people die higher up? So if double O one dies, shouldn't you just promote everyone below? So double O two now becomes double O one. Because then you've got to find someone from scratch who is better than all your existing double O's in order for your ranking system to work and double O one still be the best double O. But this is what I mean. This is what we don't know because we don't know where the other double O's come from. Also, we know Bond's backstory, but we don't know where the double O's you assume would come from sort of a, a glittering military career or, you know, from some other area of the espionage world where they can, you know, because they've got to pick people they can trust that aren't going to defect or that aren't going to, you know, go over to the enemy. So they're, they're going to have to have a tight knit bunch in there anyway. So it's, it stands to reason that, yes, they might either promote others from within that are already double O's, so you might get higher up the list. It just means that Bond is always double O seven. Okay, thanks a lot for that crazy theory, Phil. Do get in touch with the show if for some bizarre reason you agree with him. So uh, we'll move on now to our next segment, Delve Deeply. Are you uh, quite sure I can't persuade you to stay the night? When one is in Egypt... One should delve deeply into its treasures. So I have just realised the, the the irony of this title 
in the sense that I'm not really diving deeply. I'm just giving you a very brief summary of a location of a Bond film. Uh, so this week we're going to analyze Egypt, of course, plays a prominent role in one of the best James Bond films, Roger Moore's best, The Spy Who Loved Me. And if you may remember, the, uh, of course, one of the, uh, the famous scenes is the, the pyramid light show that we get. Lots of bright colors illuminating the pyramids of Giza and uh, that modulated clear voice that we get describing the, uh, the historic lens. Uh, apparently, if you, if you go on TripAdvisor, uh, that voice is now Sir Anthony Hopkins. Uh, so um, that would have been interesting if that had been in the film. That could, that could have been a, an interesting cameo if they'd have had him uh, in his young days doing that. You can still visit for 15 US dollars. Uh, presumably, it's a bit more expensive if you want a, a terrifying chase with Jaws put into the, uh, the, the adventure as well. Um, and also, at the time of recording, of course, travel not really possible in the, the lockdown restrictions that we have now. But you can have a virtual tour of Egypt uh, across the, the pyramids into some of the museums uh, for 10 US dollars. You can join a live webinar session now for a guided tour around those different areas, including the Luxor Temple, which we also see in the film with Jaws pursuing Bond and X. Many dates there for the webinars on eventbrite.com. Not a sponsor, although if they do want to, they're more than happy. And so uh, I think that's pretty much uh, the things that I wanted to cover for Egypt, apart from uh, one of our favorite scenes, of course, is with Sandor on the rooftop. And you can visit that rooftop, uh, which I'd quite like to do. It's the roof of the Gaya Anderson Museum. And it looks pretty much identical to what it does in the film. So if you want to go there with some friends, recreate the Sandor moment, maybe not the end part, you might get in trouble if you throw your friend off of the, uh, the roof. But uh, quite interesting that many of the, those places, of course, they've remained similar for thousands of years, but they do look pretty much the same as they appear in The Spy Who Loved Me. That's really great. I think when we're allowed to travel again, we should make a point of all three of us getting together in Cairo and going to the Gaia Anderson rooftop and we'll all just all three of us together shout pyramids as loud as we can from the top of that roof. Yeah, we could stage our own fight sequence. I think that, well, you know, choreographed, but I think that would be a, a fun little tribute to the spy who loved me. I love the idea of Anthony Hopkins maybe doing that, that sort of voiceover at the light show. He'd probably pronounce the word geezer correctly, wouldn't he? He gets it wrong, doesn't he? He says geese in The Spy Who Loved Me. Have you ever noticed? The Great Pyramids of Geese. But yeah, Hopkins would be much better. Oh, yeah, here we are, Land of the Pharaohs. Land of the Pharaohs, Mr. Fryer. How do we get to the Pyramids of Geese? Go around the horn. Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. And we'll move on now to Kilbranch. So what questions do we have this time, Phil? Now, last time we were talking about the fact that there's no real uh, new James Bond merchandise for fans coming out at the moment. And I'm fully aware that nobody from the marketing department at Eon Productions or from the 007 store will probably be listening to this. But it still doesn't stop me from basically putting out a plea of, for the love of God, can the 007 store stop trying to market god-awful tat? to 007 fans for ludicrous prices. Now, I'm not sure if my colleagues will have seen this this week, but um, there was a, an apparently famous Italian designer that has put out some new James Bond merchandise, some hoodies and T-shirts and so on, which might be the most disgusting items of clothing I think I've ever seen. I know this is technically a questions point, but it's, it's just it's so horrendous and so awful it's just and it's also so expensive as well it's kind of 
it's almost like it's so devoid of what the fans want. So I kind of want to get your guys' opinions. You probably won't have seen the merchandise, but do you think that we're being shortchanged for the type of merchandise we should be getting at the moment? Let me get this straight, Phil. The, the questions for this week are you saying the 007 merchandise is shit? <laughs> okay, well, I haven't actually seen them. I just went on the 007 store. You can buy Octopus's bathrobe. That's quite a good gift. I'd have that. Yeah, for like 700 quid. That's well worth it. Really? What, really? Yeah. Where else are you going to get Octopus's bathrobe? Now, on a more slightly more serious note um, this week, this weekend was actually marking 10 years um, since the composer John Barry passed away. So I just wanted to ask you guys, what were your favourite compositions or pieces of music from John Barry, either from the Bond films or from his other uh, kind of repertoire of music? In, I mean, in terms of Bond music, um, I think you have to go with Goldfinger, where he, he had the first proper free reign over the entire score and just was absolutely superlative. And also on Her Majesty's Secret Service, when he brings in a lot of electronica elements, a whole load of new themes. And the score for that film is just absolutely magnificent on, on every single level. Uh, in terms of non-Bond, I'd probably go something... I mean, he did so many amazing ones. The Out of Africa score is amazing. It's so beautiful and lush and haunting. Um, but yeah, I, I guess those would be my favourites. Uh, sorry, Phil, my brain is still in the overpriced world of the 007 store. I can't... Uh, um, to, yeah, I'd probably go along with you, Adam. I think uh, On Her Majesty's, for me, is one of his uh, his best bits of Bond work. Really builds up the story nicely, doesn't it, with a new Bond? And it just complements every scene of that uh, of that film, seems to be complemented in some way by the score. And I believe, am I right in saying that he also did the the instrumental for A View to a Kill? I could be wrong on that one, but I, I do adore that one. That, you know, the very soft flute music as it comes in. You know, it's a very, very elegant way to, to kind of get past the electro synth that we kind of hear with Duran Duran. Okay, so that was our Q branch for this week. So just a bit of a short and sweet one this time. But of course, if you do have any questions, suggestions or theories, please do get in touch with us. We're always open to, to talking about your either your fan theories or your questions. So you can get in touch with us through the usual methods on our social media channels and on our Gmail account. Thank you very much indeed, Phil. So that brings us nicely to the end of our episode this week with the quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! It tends to be the uh, the big names in Bond who are quite rightly celebrated, but long-time listeners of the show will know I have quite the soft spot for the minor characters, often actors who go on to have bigger careers after their Bond performance, or indeed sometimes people who never have another acting job in their life. Uh, so uh, this week, it's three questions each. I'll present you with the name of a TV or film... And all you have to do is tell me which of the three options that I'm going to give you appeared in that film or TV show. So, Adam, would you like set A or set B? Oh, set A for Adam always. Question number one. Your three actors are Richard Liu, Bert Kwok, Michael Chow. But who appeared as George Sim in The Bill? Oh, that's very difficult. Um, I'm going to say Richard Liu. Unfortunately, it was our favourite Burt Kwok. Of course it was. I wondered if you were going to do that. Overthought it. So, Phil, we've got James Bree, Earl Cameron, John Ketteringham. But who played Keeper of the Matrix in the 1980s episodes of Doctor Who? I'll go with the last. Was it John Ketteringham? I can't remember his... 
he was the fake James Bond from from Russia with Love. But unfortunately, no, it was James Bree who plays Gumbold, a scene that we discussed earlier in the episode. So no points. It is quite a difficult one this week. Over to you, Adam. Question number two. We have Peter Burton, Peter Bayliss, Philip Locke. But who played Sheikh in the Arab Council in Lawrence of Arabia? Oh, that's really difficult. Um, Peter Burton, I think, was the, the original armor in Doctor No, which is the same year as Lawrence of Arabia. So let's just guess that Peter Burton did them both in one go. That was good thinking, Adam, and it is correct thinking. Well done. Peter Burton played Major Boothroyd, of course, in Doctor No, and he was also in Lawrence of Arabia. One point to you. Back to Phil. Your three. We have Leonard Barr, Shane Rimmer, Ed Bishop. But who played a TV supremo in a number of episodes of The Demon Headmaster? I'm going to say Ed Bishop. Who did he play in Bond, Phil? Oh, I'm not sure. Well, you got the correct answer anyway. That is, Ed Bishop did appear in The Demon Headmaster, and he was Klaus Hergesheimer, G-Section's uh, finest. Uh. So it's one apiece, going into our final question. Back to you, Adam. We have Earl Jolly Brown, Vijay Amritraj, Jerry Duggan. But who was a starship captain in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home? I don't remember the name of it. I mean, Earl Jolly Brown's Whisper, I think, and I'm trying to <laughs> think. Is, yeah. Was Whisper in Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home? Who is a more likely starship captain? Well, well, when you think about it, not Whisper. But then I'm thinking, you love live and let die. So would it be? I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go Earl Jolly Brown against my own better instincts. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was VJ Amritraj. VJ was in Star Trek Four: The Voyage. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep, and of course, well, the other option was Jerry Duggan. My other favourite, Hawker the Caddy, but uh, I didn't see him as a, a starship captain. Can you imagine him as a starship <laughs> captain in Star Trek? We're going to the Slazenger One galaxy. So over to you, Phil. For the win, we have Serena Scott Thomas, Alison Doody, Ruth Kempf. But who was the model girl in an episode of Poirot? See, I've watched a lot of Poirot. I can't remember Alison Doody ever being in one. because I would have And you would remember that, Phil, wouldn't you? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but you'd think Absolutely. you'd remember VJ Amritraj from <laughs> Star Trek Four. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say Serena Scott Thomas. That is the correct answer. Well done, Phil. She played Dr. Holly Warmflesh in oh, The World Is Not yeah. Enough, and she was also a model girl in Poirot. Phil, you got the correct answer, so you win oh. by two points to one. Uh what song would you like to play us out? Well, I, I think we should do a tribute to John Barry, being as it is the anniversary of, of his passing. I believe, did he do Honor Majesties? Do you listen to a word we say, Phil? We, we both said it was our favourite of John Barry's. Sorry. Yeah, so let's do that. <laughs> let's, let's have an instrumental from Honor Majesties in honour of John Barry. Very nice, Phil. Fitting tribute there for John Barry. So uh, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thanks a lot for joining us. Do check us out on social media pages. We'll be back next week. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil.
Just give me a sec. This is the wrong page. I'm just gonna. Uh... Yeah, this this will all stay in. <laughs> Phil finding right. them. Oh, hello. Phil's Gmail inbox. <laughs> Bloody hell! Two thousand emails. Yeah. What have you been doing, Phil? Not yeah, paying attention to my email. Yeah, oh, that's oh, poor, poor doing? Gmail organization, that Phil. That's really bad. Yeah. How to use Zoom. Yes, it's you should know by get... now. We've done thirty <laughs> yes, episodes it's on because it. Because I can't add a new bloody tab because the Zoom thing is in the way. Right. God. This, I think this is the closer, isn't it? This is the outro. <laughs> Us watching Phil on Google. <laughs>